All right, so I'm going to get Paul to pop up the, um, the word cloud that you guys have all created as you've been thinking about family and how you describe family. So let's see what's up there, what's come up. So love is a pretty big one there. The bigger the word, that means the more people have put that word up there in response to that question. Unconditional love, security, sense of togetherness. Any surprises up there? Sorry? Where's that? I didn't do it, but I saw it before. That's awesome. And true. Chaos, life-giving, inclusive, connected by blood, reason of life, committed, comfort. I love that. Possible organ donor. We've got a comic in our midst. So thinking about how we describe family, you know, who is in your family? When you think of family, who is in your family? We experience many expressions of family, don't we? And we describe family based on our experiences, um, our perspectives of family. And family can be described beyond biological content and the nuclear family. Family can be attached to really strong emotions, both positive and negative. They can be attached to joy, to hurt, to mess, to gratitude. And we tend to have a sense of who is in and who is out of family. Maybe who we wish we're in and who we wish we're out. Can I take a moment to paint a picture for you? What if a gathering of God's people was well known as a place of safety, of of refuge, of unconditional welcome? What if being a follower of Jesus was a universal symbol of peace and openness? What if the church were known for who they were for, for who they were standing with, rather than who they were against? So we're continuing this afternoon in our series, for those of you that might be visiting um, in Faithful Presence is our series, where we've been exploring disciplines or practices of what it means as a church, what it means as a faith community to engage as followers of Jesus in this great story of God's kingdom and to tend to his presence in all the world. We've looked at practices of reconciliation, practices of proclaiming the gospel, and today I'll be looking at the practice or the discipline of being with the least of these. So the least of these. What comes to your mind when I say the least of these? Do you think of people that you know? Do you think of images that you've seen? What do you feel? Does it feel close or does it feel somewhere out there? And actually, who are the least of these? And what does this have to do with the presence of Jesus and life committed to following him? Now, I admit I struggle a little bit with this language. To me, it feels full of innuendo. It feels full of assumption. It feels like we're talking about people who are lesser than. And language is so important, isn't it? And here, especially, as we reference groups of people and spaces of power, So I want to take a moment to just understand the context of this a little more. So we take this phrase from Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, in amongst a chunk of Jesus' teaching, he tells the story of the sheep and the goats, of the nations coming before Christ on the throne and being separated as as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And I read that this is normal or was normal practice for shepherds who would separate the sheep from the goats due to the different needs of each type of animal. So he separated the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And Christ the king on the throne says to the sheep, come, 
you that are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. In response, the righteous asked, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? King Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, who are members of my family, you did it to me. The message version says, Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. So the least of these... Those in need, the outsider, the marginalised, the outcast, the shamed, the hurting, the powerless, the other. And they are brothers and sisters of Jesus. They are his family. They are his kin. So our society operates by people doing things for and to people, creating projects, implementing these, evaluating them, and in turn sometimes making people into projects. I know this from my own work in the world of health. However, whilst we live in a project-oriented society, people seldom wish to be projects. This I also know from life and work with people. It's not that projects are necessarily wrong or having intention is bad, but it's about where these intentions come from, what motivates them. The question is, what does this project foster or lead to because people wish to belong? People wish for connection, people desire family. People desire kinship. And the kingdom of God speaks powerfully into this human and God-wired desire where life with God is within a space where people join together as brothers, as sisters, as kin, as family. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus invites us. He calls us into friendship, into a sense of kinship to be with him. Not to be his underlings in a new kingdom, but to join with him to be part of this new way. This kinship is intimate, it's close, it's family. We refer to H3O a lot as family, don't we? And I know that we in the Sherwin house refer to our family here. So we're familiar with this language. There is inherent kinship in the gathering of the people of God, in Christ's new kingdom. No one is an object or project of someone else. We're invited to participate in life together with God, to be with one another in Christ. And we are specifically called to be with, to kinship, to close family-like relationship with the least of these. This is so far from projects, isn't it? This is life with those in our community, our neighbourhoods and spaces, that open up for us to witness to the presence of Jesus in the midst of hurt, in the midst of the hard stuff. This is his outrageous kingdom. So staying now in the book of Matthew, but backtracking a little, we read about the Canaanite woman. Now this has always been a really strange story for me and one that on first reading or the first few readings just really didn't sit well. Jesus speaks in a way that it's not the way that I know that Jesus is from the rest of scripture. But on a closer look, as with much of the way of Jesus, I think there is an outrageously radical turn everything upside down, expression of inclusion here, as we read of the time just before his death 
and a resurrection and this ushering in of the new kingdom and the new way. So we're going to have a take, take a closer look at this passage. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, it's Matthew 15, 21 to 28. So in this part of Jesus' teaching, he's withdrawing from his teaching to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a woman comes to him. She's desperate. She's crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now we're told this woman is a Canaanite. And in Mark, she's referred to as a Syrophoenician. So this region of Tyre Tyre and Sidon, where she is from, was despised by the Jews. They had a long history as enemies. This woman was a cultural outsider to Jesus and his disciples. She was a foreigner, a Gentile, from a despised region, and she was a woman. Rather than immediately overcoming these cultural challenges and welcoming her in and healing her daughter straight away, as we might expect, Jesus doesn't respond. He seems to ignore her. But this woman is not going to give up easily. She persists. Her daughter needs help, and she believes that Jesus is the only one that can help her. The disciples are annoyed. They want Jesus to just send her away. She's being annoying. And he responds strangely, almost wearily or apologetically. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. We heard about the sheep earlier, remember? Those who inherit the kingdom of God. She comes to him and kneels before him, throwing herself at his mercy. Lord, help me. He replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs dogs. He actually uses the words dogs. Now I love looking at period art interpretations of scripture like this one here because I think it says a lot about the context of the time um, and what informed theology of that particular time in history. And with this story of the Canaanite woman, some artistic interpretations, not this one in particular, also include a dog or dogs in the picture and they're often puppy-like dogs, Maltese type, I don't know if they were around in Jesus' time. But I think that misses the point. Referring to the Gentiles like this woman as dogs was common amongst the Jews. It was a pretty strong insult with racial implications. Jesus seems to say, my hands are tied. I was sent to God's people of Israel, the Jews, and it's not right for me to take away what is theirs and give it to you, a Gentile. The woman responds, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's like a mic drop moment for me. Her response is bold and loaded. But Jesus, she says, if Israel, the Jews, are God's chosen, promise-bearing people, surely you, Israel's Messiah, will ultimately bring blessing to the whole world. You are the Lord of the dogs too, and the dogs will share the food from the Lord's table. In that moment, Jesus recognises he can do something. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. This Gentile woman has great faith. That is enough. And Jesus heals her daughter immediately. N.T. Wright describes this moment. The disciples and perhaps Jesus himself are not yet ready for Calvary. This foreign woman is already insisting upon Easter. This woman also appears in the Gospel of Mark, and in Mark's telling of the story, this is Jesus' first conversation with a Gentile, and we know it's certainly not his last, and he doesn't again treat a Gentile the way he initially responded to this woman. 
Another writer says, Jesus shows us in this story that inheriting bias is inevitable, but holding on to it is a choice. Inheriting bias is inevitable, but holding on to it is a choice. This woman shows up twice in the Gospels with her determined love for her daughter, her quick wit, her faith in Jesus, and her belief that she belongs in the room, even if at this time she can't be at the table. She also shows that even the ones who should know this have to be reminded. Here is a woman, an outsider, a foreigner, hated by the Jews, and yet Jesus listens. He hears her voice, hears her need, and responds. He treats her as family. This is practicing inclusion beyond that of a side project. This is inclusion in life. This is where Jesus is present. The whole of scripture shows us a God that is moved by compassion, a God who can be persuaded, a God who responds, a God who is always moving towards us. Some of the biggest issues of the early church were issues of inclusion. Who was in and who was out? Who gets to sit at the doorstep and who gets to be invited in as family, really into family, into that safe space which opens us up to risk and vulnerability, And my experience of being part of church for 30 plus years tells me that this is also a big issue today. As I think about the least of these, it's so tempting for me to pull from my own experience and tell a story or two at this point. Stories I've encountered, stories that Paul and I and the boys have been invited into, captivating, interesting, amazing, devastating, but inspiring stories. And I thought about this a lot because the story is, you know, a great engagement piece in a sermon. But I don't want to tell other stories in a way that parades or cheapens the real experience of others. And the bottom line is, in this context, they're not my stories to tell. But I can tell you my story. And part of my continued story of transformation and a growing understanding of grace. Part of it's my work. But this has also shaped how I and we as a family seek to do life together, however imperfectly. I would describe my professional life as encountering and journeying with people in spaces of distress, of vulnerability, of hopelessness, but also hope and resilience and growth. I'd like to say I entered my career motivated by love, but truthfully, it was infatuated interest. And yes, as a desire to help others, but kind of in a way to do my work out there and feel good about it and come back to my blessed life. What I didn't anticipate was for these people to change me, to continue to change me. For me to understand that doing to is so different to doing or being with. These people have become my people. I've witnessed light in utter darkness, beauty in ugliness, hope in despair, and I've had kindness and grace extended to me when I, have at least, when I have least deserved it. I haven't always recognized it as this, but I've experienced the presence of Jesus and the kingdom of God breaking through in ways that I couldn't possibly have otherwise. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God inaugurates a whole new world of open doors and generous tables. Outsiders belong. The despised, outcast, uncelebrated, oppressed, different, all find a place at this party. This is the reconciliation that we've been talking about. This is the significance of the Lord's table and why we've been celebrating it so frequently. 
Some of you know that a year or so ago, I began working with a church in Paddington to help them to develop a way to build a structure and community that could support those experiencing mental distress and to provide a space that fostered mental health recovery. I was really excited about this opportunity to use my professional experience and expertise and within a church context, it was perfect. And if I was completely honest, it was something new and exciting as well. I already had some vague connections with this church, I'd done my homework, and I knew a little of the context that I was walking into. I was curious and looking forward to an opportunity to refine my thinking, refine my theology of ministry within a community that practiced inclusion in a way that was a little different to my own experience. My learning and growth over the years has led me to an approach of being with, of not assuming that my experience or my expertise is the only experience or expertise in the room, to be curious and listen, to journey alongside and in the context of a relationship, then be invited into a space of safety where growth together can take place. And this was my approach at Paddington. Together with a group of people who have a lived experience of challenge and overcoming in trauma and mental distress, we created a model and built the beginnings of a community we called the Open Table. The Open Table seeks to reflect the generosity and indiscriminate nature of the Lord's Table, where all are welcome to receive grace and love, and where there is contribution to the table as the body of Christ works together to do and be community that is reflective of the kingdom of God. It's a diverse community where people show up wherever they're at, at different stages and places of joy and challenge. It's messy, it's hard, it's beautiful. It is where Jesus is present. This community has transformed me. Whilst my study and reading and thinking was helpful to getting me to places of openness, these are secondary to the truths that I experience face-to-face in people. My dear friends, this is being with people. Tending to the presence of Jesus in places of exclusion and darkness, this is where his grace and love breaks through in the most powerful of ways. Being with the least of these. Can I take a moment to share some words of caution, however, because this is less about going out there and finding those to help and more about the presence and transformative work of God to all involved. There are things that I've recognised in myself and ways that God has used others to expose these, things that I need to constantly reflect on, to recognise and to step into a place of humility. As we approach life and inclusiveness, for some of us, We need to be aware of our whiteness, of privilege, of the presence of explicit and implicit power that is held within relationships, and self-righteousness. These are all huge topics which could warrant whole sermons on themselves, but I wanted to mention them as I think this is where things can completely miss the mark. Perhaps not intentionally, but perhaps so, as they speak to deeper truths which lie in our hearts. The greatest way that I've found to guard against these things has been through a willingness to be open, to be called out on my biases and assumptions, to say sorry, to fight the need to protect and create walls, to flee from echo chambers and pursue diversity and difference. I've sat in some pretty confronting and uncomfortable spaces and said some really stupid things in my time, but goodness, I've grown and experienced grace beyond measure. Being with needs to come from a place of abundance in God, 
not as a charitable gift from those with a lot to those who have not. This is about a posture of humility and genuine love. It doesn't mean that we won't stuff up and say or do things that are super unhelpful. Inheriting bias is inevitable, but holding on to it is a choice. This means that we recognise our biases and make a choice to let go. It means that we make a choice to extend grace, we're ambassadors of reconciliation, and we commit to discerning and tending and witnessing to the presence of Jesus in every situation, in every place that we find ourselves in. Jesus went to, was there for, and made a point of being with those on the margins and edges of society. Where do we start with the practice of being with the least of these? Like Jesus, we first go and we listen. We be with. We don't take on the role of caretaker or superior. And what does it take to be with? Recognising power. Dropping judgement. Being curious and listening. Christ's reign takes shape when we inhabit these spaces, when we be with, when we gather as family. My grandparents and the way that they lived out their faith through generous hospitality has always been a strong model for me. And I have many memories of being in their home over meals. Along with the usual holidays and celebration moments, we seem to end up there most Sundays after church, along with a bunch of others. And my siblings and I used to always joke about what randoms were going to be there when we turned up, because they were always randoms. Some we got to know, some we only met for a fleeting moment, some we liked and some who were a bit weird. And I remember the questioning and even the criticism of the way that anyone was welcome in their home. To share meals or a bed if that was what was needed. You're too trusting, they would say. You're being taken advantage of. And that certainly happened at times and it led to more cautioning. But you know what? They never changed. All were welcome. In fact, they were actively pursued and invited in. Not to the safe distance of the doorstep, but into the home, into the family. They weren't randoms, they were family. As I was writing this, memories flooded back as to the emotions and the tears of both my granddad and grandma's funerals. And I can't tell you the number of stories that were told, the number of people that came up to me wanting to share their story of how my grandparents had welcomed and loved them and the impact that they had had on their lives. There were so many that I didn't even know, but they knew me because somehow the lines between biological and created family had become blurred. They told me of how much they loved my grandparents and how they experienced the love of Jesus. This was being with. Not because it was the right thing to do, although it may have been, but because they truly loved the selfless and indiscriminate love that transformed themselves, that transformed others, that transformed me. Why? Because it was and is the love and presence of Jesus. And grandparents in the room never underestimate the impact and the way God can use you. Engaging with others as family, as kin, this goes beyond the odd project, brief encounters, donation or hashtag. It goes beyond the doorstep of the house. This is welcome into the home. This welcome potentially exposing and messy times that leads to tricky conversations with our partners, with our kids, with our friends. But oh, how these tricky conversations are real and refining and take us into deeper places where the presence of Jesus is.
These are the breakthrough moments of the kingdom breaking through. We come to be with. We come to discern. We come to be present. We come ready to give witness. We tend to the presence of Jesus. So again, returning to those what-if questions. What if a gathering of God's people was well known as a place of safety, refuge and unconditional welcome? What if being a follower of Jesus was a universal symbol of peace and openness? What if the church was, were known for who they were for, who they were standing with, rather than who they were against? And what if this family, what if you and I relentlessly lived out God's vision for community and kingdom and were unashamedly, unmistakably God's faithful presence in the world to all the world? So who are those in need? Who are those on the margins, the outsiders in your sphere? And how do you listen? How do you invite them in as family? My conviction is that my place is with the outsiders, the hurting, the powerless, the courageously vulnerable, creating a home of goodness and welcome, hospitality and laughter, truth and kindness, love and gentleness in the wilderness. That's a nod to Brene Brown. Ainsley. <laughs> The song that I want to sing is that we all belong in Jesus and that we all belong together. Jed mentioned a few weeks ago the recent death of American writer Rachel Held Evans. And I don't know if anyone saw her funeral. It was live streamed. Did anyone see it? I saw it. I cried a lot. It was a powerful testament to her legacy and relentless work in proclaiming the good news to all people. And there was a benediction read out at the end by Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber, who also gave the sermon at the funeral, which was the best, I think, funeral sermon I've ever heard in my life. So she read out this benediction and it also incorporated Rachel's own writing and her words at the end of it. And I couldn't think of a better way to read this over our community to finish up. So I'm going to do that now. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are those who doubt. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those whom no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at school lunch. The laundry guys at the hospital. The sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. The closeted. The teens who have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. I imagine Jesus standing here blessing us because that is our Lord's nature. This Jesus cried at his friend's tomb, turned the other cheek and forgave those who hung him on a cross. He was God's beatitude, God's blessing to the weak in a world that admires only the strong. Jesus invites us into a bigger story than ourselves and our imaginations, yet we all get to tell that story with a scandalous particularity of this moment and this place. We are storytelling creatures because we are fashioned in the image of a storytelling God. May we never neglect that gift. May we never lose our love for the telling the story. Amen.